0: If you grew up in the, if you were a Christian, let me say it this way, and you have some memory of the 70s and maybe late 60s, uh, some of you remember that one of the things that was a big trend of the Christian uh, Jesus movement would be when celebrities would become believers, get saved. And then they would uh, write a testimony book, or they would go on one of the Christian shows, and then they would begin to have a whole venue of concerts or traveling or whatever. Uh, how many of you remember the uh, Nicky Cruz cross and the switchblade? That was probably one of the biggest uh, of those type of books that, that came out, uh, I remember Pat Boone when you know he had a testimony book. Later on, Charles Colson, who was a part of Nixon, uh, really kind of that's where that word, even though it was in the Bible, but the term "born again" around 1976-75, that uh, you know you began to Time Magazine had the term "born again." That you know uh, began to be kind of in our uh, vocabulary as a country. A lot of conversions, and I remember. Uh, How many of you remember who B.J. Thomas is? Raindrops keep flying. I remember because I, I and he became a Christian, and and uh, so that was really big and popular when a celebrity or some politician would become a Christian. It was kind of they'd write a book or they'd make a new album, and, and then they would kind of go on the, the circuit and begin to speak and, and go into churches or whatever. Well, this is a this is the probably the greatest conversion story. Let me take that back the greatest conversion is your conversion. Right? So next to that, the Apostle Paul in Scripture is probably the greatest conversion uh, event because of who he was. And so if I say Saul or Paul interchangeably, I'm talking about the same person, the same guy. So in Acts chapter 9, in the midst of a very, uh, as the church is growing and facing persecution, and one of the people that is leading this persecution is this man by the name of Saul. And we come to the end of, was it chapter uh, 6 or 7, we see him introduced as uh, when Stephen was Killed when Stephen was martyred, we uh, refer to it as the first Christian uh, leader that was killed, and uh, because of the opposition, at the end of uh, chapter seven, we are see, we see this uh, uh, this uh, person who is holding the coats of those who were stoning and had killed Stephen, and in chapter eight begins of how Saul approved of this killing by. Uh, these religious leaders, and calling what Stephen was exalting Christ and saying it was blasphemy, it was this man by the name of Saul. So here's what you need to remember is if there is an unlikely individual to become a Christian, it was this guy named Saul. I mean, it would be comparable to reading about one of the top ayatollahs in Iran becoming an, an evangelist, and preaching the gospel in Tehran, okay? Very unlikely. And this uh, individual by the name of Saul was passionate uh, in his hatred towards Christians. Now, his hatred was fueled by the fact that he thought he was serving God. Those individuals that flew those airplanes on 9-11 thought they were doing God's will. They weren't. But they thought they were doing God's will by killing themselves and killing all the the people in this uh, act of of horrible terror. Paul, or Saul, he uh, was on this rampage and believed that he was following the uh, will of God. Uh, Just look with me at the beginning of chapter 9, and uh, the first six verses I just want to look at. It's a long chapter, and we're going to work our way through it in a different way. It should be on the screen. And uh, did you get abandoned up there? Okay, I just I just uh, noticed uh, uh, who was up there. And uh, but Acts chapter nine, notice with me how it begins. We're going to just read the first six verses, and I encourage you to have your Bibles, whether you have it on your phone or in the way Jesus carried it with leather and tabs. However you want to uh, have it, Uh, bring your Bibles. Take take notes. Right, you know, you got a little space if you don't. Make use of that little tear-off sheet and the prayer sheet. Uh, write things down. Uh, be engaged with Scripture, okay? Be engaged with the Word of the Lord this morning. And, and, and it isn't just to humor me, but it's as I believe that the Word of God has has power. The Spirit of God, that's that's uh, an instrument that the Holy Spirit uses uh, for our life. And so when you're intentional in engaging with Scripture, you're, again, just making yourself more available for the work of the Spirit by connecting Word and Spirit, by connecting the Word of God with the Spirit of God. So be engaged with the Word today. And uh, it begins by beginning in verse 1 of uh, Acts chapter 9. But Saul, there he is, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Pretty intense situation of this guy. He, He is on a rampage. He went to the high priest and asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. This is in Syria. This isn't in Jerusalem. Damascus is in Syria, and Syria is still much uh, in our news. And he wants to go and chase after these Christians that have scattered, and they're in the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that was one of the terms that referred to uh, as Christians, they were called the way. Unfortunately, there was a cult that began to identify as the way, but uh, that's, that's an unfortunate. But the way was the, uh, one of the early names for the followers of Christ. So he wanted to find anyone belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Let me just pause there. That phrase where it says he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, uh, there's, there's a great... Uh, 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 bible teacher who's long gone and in heaven uh, AT Robertson and he's got a, a book a series of books called Word Pictures of the New Testament it kind of bring out the greek meaning and he's very helpful listen to how he uh gives us a little insight into the the way the greek would read about this phrase breathing threats meaning that Paul was threatening and and the, and slaughter had come to be the very breath that Saul breathed. It was like a war horse who sni- sniffed the smell of battle. This isn't just someone who's just kind of on a little bit of a, of a, of a you know, travel, cruise, uh, expedition. This is someone who is obsessed with chasing down like a horse who is sniffing the smell of battle. Look at verses 3 through 5. Now, as he, Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He knew it was God, But I don't think he was expecting to hear that it was Jesus. Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Now, if you read on the story there, you find out he went into the city, and God raised up this, uh, really, we might him in our vernacular, a a layman. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't anybody, a priest or anything like that, by the name of Ananias. And he went into this, the city, and Ananias, God had spoke to Ananias, and you can read that later in that, that section. And as he met with Ananias, he was there three days, and he was baptized, and, and his life dramatically changed. And the thing we need to remember this morning, before we go any further, is the reminder, is that salvation does not depend on the will of man, but rather on the sovereign power of God and that God can save whoever he wants. You see, there was nothing inherent in Saul that would give any indication that he was seeking after Christ, is there? In fact, the very opposite. You know, the idea that some would say, well, God will never violate your will. That's a bunch of baloney. He'll break your will. If it's his will, he's, he's not in any way impressed by your will. I like uh, how Paul gives us some insight. We've studied Galatians on Wednesday. And he gives a little bit of his testimony in Galatians chapter 1. Look with me at how he gives us a little insight into his testimony in Galatians chapter 1. He writes, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. He's sharing his testimony. There's three or four different places in Scripture uh, where he gives us his testimony and a little bit more information, and Galatians is one of them. He says, you've heard, because it's well known in my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and notice what it says, and tried to do what? Tried to destroy it. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against my church. And so he said, I tried. I like that, how I tried to destroy it. Verse 14, he said, I was advancing in Judaism. That, again, to give you a little help there, people way smarter than me, that term advancing in Judaism in the Greek means uh, to chop ahead. It's a picture of someone with like a machete going through the woods. You've seen pictures of people going through with a, the woods or a very dense forest, and they're, they're chopping ahead. They're making a path. What he's saying is, I wasn't just some some guy. I was one of the leading individuals that was advancing. In fact, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. In other words, I was the head of the class. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. You get the picture of where he's at? All right? But I love verse 15, but, but when it pleased God, the old King James says, but, the ESV says, but when he who had set me apart, when? God didn't look down through time and say, oh, I'll see one day that... This Saul will choose me, so therefore I'm going to choose him and make me one of my elect. God says, the Word says, that he was chosen by God before he had the ability to make any decisions. Do you see that? I mean, unless your Bible's different than mine, that's what mine says. He says, he set me apart when? Before I was ever born. You've heard me always quote Spurgeon that said, surely God must have chosen me before I was born, because he never would have chosen me thereafter. Right? Right? In verse 16, and he was pleased, or rather, let me finish verse 15, who set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. And he was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The NIV says, who set me apart from my mother's womb. Saul had done nothing to earn God's grace. He wasn't worthy. He didn't get his act together and decided then to come to Christ When God grants salvation, it's not because of anything in man, it's only by God's free, sovereign grace, not by human merit, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, amen? It's by grace, and so God is able to convert the most unlikely of sinners. And let that be an encouragement to you this morning, that if you are praying and believing for somebody in your family. How many of you have at least one family member that does not know Christ that you've at least prayed for on a regular basis, right? You've got a coworker. you've got a neighbor. I mean, of course. And then there are some, let's just be honest, we say, you know what, that's, that's a tough, that's going to be a tough one. I, you know, You may never verbally say it, But you think it and you just say, I just don't ever see that person ever surrendering to Christ. Do you think they could have said that about Paul? Do you think that in the midst of all this hell-bound attack that this Saul was doing, do you think the church, because we know they were a praying church, do you think somewhere on their prayer chain email there was, let's keep, Lori. let's keep Brother Saul because we're going to say by faith, he's a brother. Let's pray for Saul that he would come to faith in Christ. And you get that, and you're like, oh, yeah, right. I got relatives and family that he's hauled off. Pray for him, yeah. Pray God will strike him dead, right? Well, God struck him. And in one sense, spiritually, he did strike a dead man and made him alive. This morning, I want us to look at This conversion. And this morning, the title of the message is what we'll look at. The title of the message is Marks, the Marks of Genuine Conversion. And this morning, and don't panic, because they're going to be short, but there's eight marks in this passage. But we're going to go quick. And if you don't pay attention, I'll slow down. Now, we're going to go through them because they're just, they're, just, they're just great here. And they're marks of genuine conversion. Remember when we looked at Simon the sorcerer, Simon, and we talked about how that was counterfeit faith? And you've heard me say this before, and I've, I've said this to our elders and deacons and said it here. I've come to the conclusion in, in, in pastoral ministry, and uh, it's almost as difficult to come out of my mouth, but for 35 years involved in in full-time ministry that much of the difficulty in dealing and relating and and encouraging and disciple all those things with people in the church, that the ones that were seen to be the most difficult, I am convinced that the difficulty was that they were not converted. You know, have you ever tried to motivate and encourage somebody that has no heart change or affections for Christ, it's impossible. Now, we might be able to dress them up and make them religious. You can make non-converted people members of a church. You can baptize unconverted people. You can make unconverted people deacons and elders. You can do that all day long, but it doesn't change the fact that if there's no heart change, if there's no transformation, guess what? It'll get revealed sooner or later. Do you believe that? Yeah. Just pretend you do. Just, head. No, because I'll add 10 more points here. No, won't do that. But notice with me, and that's why I encourage you to not only write these down and mark these, but let this also be a way that, dare I say, even evaluate your own conversion this morning. 1 John has several marks or tests, even in 1 John, in which they're, they're evidences or marks of conversion. But this morning we're going to just look at Paul's conversion here in Acts chapter 9. And notice number one, the first mark is that of conviction. Conviction. There needs to be conviction of sin of true, before true conversion. You see, before a person can become a saint... They've got to acknowledge that they're a sinner before God. And so the Lord asked in verse 4 of chapter 9, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, don't think that God is trying to gather information here. Remember in the garden where he says uh, to Adam and Eve, where are you? He knew exactly where they were. He was trying to get them to realize where they were. Him asking this question is for Saul to recognize where he is at. You think you're serving God? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, God, Jesus? That's what he asked him. He wanted Saul to consider what he did. And there's certainly, I believe, evidence of conviction when you go down to verse 9. And you'll have to use your Bibles for some of this. I didn't put everything on the screen that when he went to Ananias' house, it says he didn't eat or drink for three days. It wasn't, I don't think, he was fasting to say, you know, I need to kind of sort through this experience, see if this was of God, I need to wait on God. I wonder what was going on. He knew, he knew he was slapped by God. That's an old Hebrew word, what happened there, slapped by God. I mean, it's like a person who mourns over death or some. Tragic event. You're, you don't have an appetite. You're not a, Food is the last thing you're thinking about. I mean, this was a dramatic event in his life, and I believe it's partial to that he was mourning over his sins. In fact, he even makes reference to this later. I mean, remember what is fresh in his memory. He not only witnessed, but he instigated the killing of Stephen. He is hauling men and women from their homes and putting him in jail because of his fervency. Do you think he had something to be convicted about? And not only that, but here was a man by his own testimony. He was a Pharisee. He was advancing in Judaism. He never, ever thought that he had anything sinful and displeasing to God until God revealed himself. The closer you get to the light of Christ, the more you see of His holiness, and the more you see of your own sinfulness. Notice, secondly, humility. Humility, a mark of conversion. Humbling from our pride is a mark of true conversion. Pride is the root of all sins, and we must fight it every day, even as believers. But no one is converted who boasts in their own righteousness, because we have none. No one is saved who thinks that their good deeds will commend them to God. You have your your balance, and your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. That is not what the Bible teaches. No one is converted or saved who thinks that their own brilliant choice uh, somehow attained him for salvation. Saul, keep in mind what's going on here, Saul went off storming towards Damascus with authority to arrest Christians. He had the power on his side, but after the Lord met him in that dramatic way and struck him down. He had to be led. He's a big shot going to Damascus, has a cadre of soldiers and people behind him. But when when God, a very God, met him and struck him down, he had to be led by the hand to Damascus. First, he was independent and strong, After he met God, he's dependent and weak. God used Ananias, and you can read that in full. Ananias, uh, he was a simple believer. What a contrast. Saul, by his own testimony, was one of the most advanced leaders as a Pharisee, educated under Gamaliel. You remember back in chapter 5 we heard about Gamaliel? Remember, he's the one... They told the Sanhedrin, look, if this is of God, you better not mess with it. And if it's not, it'll die on its own. Remember Gamaliel? He was one of the top teachers. Paul, by his own testimony in Acts 22, says that he was a student uh, under Gamaliel. Uh, he was, he was, that was a, a very high privilege. It'd be like saying, I went to Yale or I went to Harvard or Princeton. Great educational pedigree. And God, in his humor, to slay the pride of Saul, guess what? He takes Ananias, uneducated, right? Just, a you know, again, I, we don't know a whole lot about him because this is the only time he's mentioned. And yet God, in his providence, takes this man, Ananias, to lead this elite Pharisee to knowledge and faith in Christ. God can do anything He wants. And He's got His people anywhere. You think, if, I don't, if that person could just get here, God has ways of connecting that loved one in your family with just the right person at the right time. He's got His agents all over the place, ready and willing to be used by His bidding. Thirdly, a mark that we see here is Submission. Submission, a recognition of and obedience to the lordship of Christ is a mark of true conversion. There's conviction, there's humility, and thirdly, there's submission. Look at verse 5 when he says, who are you, Lord? Lord? Uh, He got an immediate answer. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting And that had to be a dramatic revelation because Saul would have never, ever bought into the idea that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. You think his mind changed at this moment? He is confronted by the resurrected Jesus Lord himself. And he told him in verse 6 to arise and go into the city. And you know what Saul did? He arose and went into the city. He obeyed. What's the mark of conversion? What's the mark of genuine salvation? Is a person is submitted under the lordship of Christ. They have taken themselves off the throne. By the way, we were never on the throne to begin with. But we change allegiances. And now we are under the lordship of Christ. And it's demonstrated in obedience. And later on we see not only did he obey and do what God told him to do, but as he met with Ananias, and Ananias instructed him in the way, he was later baptized, another act of obedience. In other words, he publicly identified now by water baptism that I am a follower of Jesus. Now, getting quiet on me, you know what happens when you get quiet on me. Amen. Thank you. All right, you just bought yourself three minutes off the clock. <laughs> You remember how the early church responded when they heard about his conversion? They were like, this is a scam. This is a setup. This guy is just trying to pull one over on. I mean, they didn't buy into it because that was how unlikely that this type of thing could be. Conviction, humility, submission, but also, fourth, transformation, transformation. A mark of conversion, a transformation from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight is a mark of conversion. There's got to be a transformed life. Jesus said you'll know a tree by its what? By its marks, by its evidences of of the root system that you can't see, but you'll see evidences of, of, of life, of transformation there. Paul began the trip physically seeing but spiritually blind. He ended it physically blind, but spiritually seeing. What he formerly thought he saw, he no longer saw. What he formerly did not see, now he saw. What was formerly gained to him, he counts as loss. What he formerly despised, he now cherished. What's going on there? There's transformation. There's a change. He was converted. Verse 18, we see that as he was talking to Ananias, scales, whatever those were, fell from his eyes, and he saw everything in a new light. I remember when I was um, 12, 13 13 years old, and I was uh, water baptized, and I was converted. And I remember on the ride home at night see, we were really saved. We had Sunday night services, okay? Just so you know. No. Uh, but we had a Sunday night service, and I was, I was water baptized. And I remember, of course, I wasn't driving then, but my aunt, we were going home. And I remember uh, saying, wow, the grass looks so green. The sky looks so blue. This is at night. What, what happened there? Transformation." My eyes were changed. I, I began to see things differently. I began to uh, uh, want my affections began to change. My ability to sin and remain happy, not so good. Couldn't, couldn't, you know, I just said, oh, I'm just going to do that. I don't care. And you know what? You're just miserable. What's going on there? The Holy Spirit's got his done his life. You're wrapped up in him. He's not going to allow you to do this stuff anymore. Transformation, change. And every truly converted person, I believe, should be able to say in one way, like the blind man that was healed, I once (laughs) was blind, but now I see. Transformation. Number five, spiritual hunger. Spiritual hunger. I had to put spiritual hunger there because Christians are already really good at hunger. right? So I had to put spiritual hunger there. It's kind of like when Paul says, you know, the uh, King James says, I buffet my body. You know, we always think that is I buffet my body. So that, that's not uh, all right. But spiritual hunger, what do we mean by that? Is that there's a spiritual seeking and a desire, a pursuit of the Lord that is a mark of true conversion. How do we see that? Look at verse 11 in your Bibles. When Ananias saw Saul, what was Saul doing? What does it say in verse 11? He was praying. What what can we discern from that? Is this man had a hunger to know God. He's already not eating for three days. He's praying. He's seeking God and Some translations you may have that says the word "Behold." How many of you have that in your Bibles? Some of you don't even know because you're not even looking in your Bibles. It says old translations or others might say "Behold." Does anybody see that? Anybody see that? All right. Thank you for humoring me. Uh, You know, I mean, in a way, it's like saying this more in a modern way instead of like "Behold," it's like "Whoa, check this out! This guy is praying. Something is really..." taken place in this guy's life. Now think about it. Before this, do you think being a Pharisee, if you know anything about Judaism and the process, I mean, not only did he know prayers and memorize prayers, more than likely had what we would call the Old Testament, definitely the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch or the books of Moses, memorized the Psalms, many if not all, that could be recited as quote-unquote prayers. It's kind of like when the disciples, remember they heard Jesus praying, and they asked him to do what? Lord, teach us to what? Teach us about the end times. Teach us about whether women should be in ministry. Teach us, no, he asked them, and I'm not saying any of those things aren't important. (laughs) They said, Teach us to pray. Now, do you think these good Jewish boys that were all bar mitzvah, do you think they knew how to pray? Yeah, they knew how to recite prayers. But what did they hear Jesus doing? They hear, heard him talking to his father, his dad. And they said, we want to pray like that. They never. That was foreign to them. I think that is somewhat maybe the kind of praying that Saul did. He probably thought, I've never done this before. What's changed? The Spirit of God is in him. The Spirit of God, according to Romans 8, is the one that takes even when we don't know how to pray and does what? Helps our spirit to commune with God. Now, do I understand that? No, I don't understand that. I just know that the Spirit of God was in this man by the name of Saul and he had a spiritual hunger because everything he had done previously, everything he had known previously is gone. Now, God would certainly is not going to not use all that Old Testament knowledge, but right now, one of the components was he didn't know Christ. There's a lot of people that can teach theology and Bible, but if you don't know the main character of Scripture, which is Jesus, and I don't mean know about Him, I mean that you have a relationship with Him. And if, if knowing Christ has not increased your desire to know Him, if you have no desire to open the Word of God, if you have no desire to engage in spiritual things, all I'm suggesting is that could be a sign that you have never been converted. Because there's always an appetite to know God more. You know what I love? This is a little extra. Uh, 2 Timothy is uh, the last letter before Paul was, was killed. And by the way, if you don't know tr- what uh, tradition or those it's uh, recorded of what happened to Paul, is he was beheaded in Rome. And one of the last letters before he died that we have is uh, 2 Timothy. And at the end of 2 Timothy, I believe it's in chapter 4, he's he's in Rome, and that's where he says, bring my coat, bring my cloak, right? I mean, here's a man, greatest evangelist, greatest Christian that's ever been saved, right? He's having to, hey, it's cold here, bring my coat, you know. But he also says, bring the parchments. You know what parchments in our vernacular were? Books. I love that. Here he's old, he's getting ready to die, and what's he saying? saying. Bring my books. There's stuff I want to read. I want to bring the scriptures. I want to read. I'm I'm not satisfied with what I know. He was still hungry for God at an old age. Now, some of us are over 50. Notice where I made the line there, 50, right? And what can also happen as we grow older in a lot of things is we become lazy and become dependent on what we Learn way back when. Listen, have a hunger to be hungry for God. Grow in that. You know how you do that? And I commend you by being in worship today, by being engaged in a small group, a Bible study, by being engaged. We are blessed with with good teaching on on Moody Radio and some other avenues. Be, Be hungry. Say, I'm not satisfied with what I know. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so is a great, wonderful truth. But I learned that in kindergarten. Don't be satisfied. The Bible says, Paul would say to the Corinthians, I want to give you meat. I want to give you deep things of God. But just babies, you still can't get off the milk. Hunger for the deep things, of God. you say, Well, I don't read too well, I don't understand. Listen, the Holy Spirit can transform your mind if you will let Him. My uncle, who was a heroin addict for 18 years, and God saved him in 1963, and he learned how to read when he got saved because he had a passion to know God, he didn't know how to read. And he later went on to pastor a church of 5,000 people and write five or six books, and God used him. And how did he do it? It's because he connected hunger and desire to know God with his ability to know God's Word. Quit using your ignorance or your bore education as an excuse not to know God. You say, well, I can't read. You know what? There's something called Bible on audio. And there's this thing called the internet. And you can get it for free. How many of you hear what I'm saying? We can make all the excuses in the world, and yet we have brothers and sisters in foreign countries that would give their lives for a little sliver of a page of one of the 12 Bibles we probably have in our house. Hunger. Hunger. Number six, fellowship. Fellowship, connection, relationship with the Lord's people is a mark of true conversion. Relationship, a desire to connect with God's people. Saul was on a mission to destroy God's people. Now he is dependent upon God's people. He's dependent upon Ananias, one of the people He probably was going to Damascus to kill. I don't know this, but I always thought it would be interesting that if somewhere in his little notes, his little day timer, one of the houses he wanted to make sure he hit and dragged out of that house and arrested was this guy named Ananias. And yet it was Ananias that God used as an instrument to open his eyes. Ananias in Acts 22 was a, refer, it says he was a godly Jew. He even had the respect of other, other fellow Jews. You see, the church and God's people, it's not, the Bible talks about us being the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And so they'll say, well, um, you don't have to be, you don't have to go to church, you don't have to be a member of a church to be saved. Of course you don't you don't. But try reading the New Testament and doing 95% of anything in the New Testament apart from relationships with other of God's people. How do you do that? You don't do that by consuming. We live in a very privatized culture. You can just stay at home and Watch your favorite teachers on the internet and they never say anything dumb like me and they're always out on, you know, 20 minutes and you know why? Because they they edit their services and and if they say anything stupid, they make sure they edit that out or whatever. You just think, oh, why can't I just, oh, it'd be so much greater if I could just have Charles Stanley come to Grace Church and I could just have David Jeremiah. By the way, we do have David Jeremiah through technology of DVD on Wednesday nights, so you can be a part of that. But we got all sorts of excuses, and we, we, we're just able to have our own private little Christianity. But that's not biblical. Paul was dependent upon someone else for his spiritual growth and journey. That's the way God has designed it. Um, David Ulrich, I'm going to pick on you, but we've been uh, with his work schedule trying to, you know, we've been meeting and discipling. One of the th- first things I told David, we begin to do this, and I'm glad he always reminds me of it. I said I'll only do this, meaning we'll we'll meet and and do, we went through some materials and discussing discipling and the Word of God and spiritual growth. And I said the only reason, the way I'll do it is if you agree right now that you in turn will do this with somebody else, right? Because it didn't just. You know, David knows a lot about the Bible. It didn't just increase knowledge. But if you're not imparting to someone else and you're not allowing someone to impart in you, then something's out of out of balance. Look at this in, um, if you have your Bibles, just don't miss this little, little nugget on this point in verse 17. It says that, uh, and you can read this. I love this, that when the Lord... You see, the Lord had to speak to Ananias, and when God spoke to Ananias that uh, he needed to go and, and, and meet Saul, uh, Ananias says, whoa, wait, God, I, wait, you, you do know who we're talking, you're talking about here. This, the guy has been killing and, and, and uh, persecuting believers. You don't mean that guy. That's Saul. And Lord says in verse 15, he said, in fact, yes, I do. That man is my chosen instrument. Am I running over? No. Okay, I just—I saw you check your watch. I just want to make sure. All right. See, I can harass some of you. Some of you, I'm afraid, would never come back. So some of you, I know I can get away with it. But he says, this man is my chosen instrument. Now, this is what's so cool. Verse 17, if you don't have your Bibles, you're going to miss out on this. And it says that Ananias departed and entered the house where this Saul was, and Ananias, laying his hands on him, addressed him as brother Saul. Isn't that cool? And say, well, you know what? I I want to hear your statement of faith. I need you, I got a little questionnaire. I need you to now tell me again. How you were saved? Were you explained justification by faith alone? I don't hear that in your testimony, Mr. Saul. Maybe you're not genuine. No, what did he do? He received him as a brother in Christ. Holy Spirit will take care of all the other things that he needs. In fact, he was told by God when Ananias, he said, the Lord told Ananias, that he must he's going to learn many things and he must suffer many things. Notice number seven, conversion, humility, submission, transformation, spiritual hunger, fellowship. Notice spirit-led. A life lived under the power and control of the Holy Spirit is a mark of genuine conversion. You see, Ananias told Saul that the Lord had sent him not only so that Saul would, re- would regain his sight, but God used this, I don't want to say anonymous because we know his name, but God used this man, Ananias. We never see him again in Scripture, but he laid his hands on him, and the Holy Spirit came into Paul's life. Now, don't miss that. The Holy Spirit's always, I mean, since his conversion, and it's part of Paul's life. He was always active in Paul's life. What's different here is that this is a filling like in Acts chapter 1.8. Look at your Bibles back over to that. Acts chapter 1 8. All you got to do is turn left a few blocks and you're there. Acts chapter 1 8. All right? All right. What does it say? That when they were told by Christ to, they wanted to know about the end times, verse 6. And he says, it's none of your business. Kind of the message translation. But verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Great, all. We're excited. Why? So that you'll be my witnesses. It was an empowerment for ministry, for service. So the Holy Spirit certainly is part of the infilling and a part of Paul's salvation. In fact, in Titus, a scripture Paul wrote in Titus 3.5 says that he has saved us, listen to this, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a is part of, you cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit. But this was an impartation of power of the Spirit for Paul to fulfill the purposes of God in his life. We know that the Holy Spirit is used in developing us and, and leading us. Remember when we were studying Galatians 5, talks about keeping in step with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. And then it talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, evidences of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And so a spirit filled life is a part of the, mar- or is a mark of a person who's been converted. Does that mean they're perfect? Of course not. Of course not. Does that mean they'll never sin? No. You'll never sin and be happy. You'll never sin and be content. First John one nine. If any of us sins, we have an advocate. Bring it to the Father. Does that mean we got to get resaved when you do the altar call? I got to go up. Some of you may have, and I, you know, raised a tradition where we got saved on Sunday and got lost by Tuesday night. Had to get resaved. They had a Wednesday night service. Whoo, good! I got resaved. Read Romans eight sometime. And the last, number eight, is there's purpose. One of the greatest things is to know that your life has meaning, has purpose. A new purpose and direction in life is in line with God's sovereign will as a mark of true conversion. Remember what Paul said? I won't have him put it back on the screen, but in Galatians chapter 1 when he was giving his testimony... He says that by His grace, He was pleased to reveal His Son in me, Galatians 1.16, in order that I might preach Him to the Gentiles. In other words, think about this. Think about the genius of God or humor of God or whatever. God takes the most rabid, anti-Gentile-hating Jew and makes Him an evangelist to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Peter was an apostle over the Jews. Paul was an apostle over the Gentiles. Gentiles were considered as dogs, and that's kind of a nice way of saying it to Orthodox Jews. They hated these unconverted Gentile heathens, but God chose him as an instrument to go to the Gentiles, to go to the non-Jews. Every person who's converted... I think this is part of the spiritual hunger is say, God, what would you have me do with my life? Remember Isaiah 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he saw the holiness of God. And as he had that encounter with the holiness of God, what was his response? Hey, God, how's it going? He said, I am undone. And, the holy, and God and his spirit touched his life, and it was only then that he said, send me. Don't underestimate. Never, 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 never underestimate the reach of God's grace. Let this be a reminder of the power of God's grace, that if God can reach even Saul, this rabid, uh, I mean, I, I like him almost the way I imagine the Taliban. That's, that's, that kind of gives us a little frame of reference, doesn't it? Everything was justified, murder, everything, because it was all in the name of God. Some of you know the name John Newton, who wrote the wonderful hymn Amazing Grace. Who wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that a wretch like me, I was once lost, but now I'm found. And you've heard me say this before, and it's just fitting for now he lived many years and served the Lord thereafter and as he was much older uh, he was speaking about heaven and I know I've said this before but it bears repeating he said as he was speaking about heaven he said there'll be three wonders in heaven three wonders about heaven to me he said the first wonder will be the number of people who are there in heaven that I did not expect to see talking about when he goes to heaven Be people there that didn't expect to see them. Secondly, he said, The second wonder when I'm in heaven will be the number of people who aren't there that I expected to see. But the third and greatest wonder of all will be to find myself there in heaven. So we're thankful that God saved Paul wrote more than half of the New Testament that God used him. He even said that his life was an example of the mercy and grace of God. So be encouraged today that if God in his sovereign grace, the Puritans had a term about God's electing grace. They talked about the hound of heaven chasing down and apprehending his own God has ways and purposes. We don't know what they are. What do we do? We pray. We pray and trust God. Say, God, I believe in your grace and mercy. You can do all things. Let's pray.